Hello, and welcome to the Massaro Method. I am so pleased today to welcome General Ben Hodges. General Hodges is the former commanding general of U.S. Army Europe. He has been writing and tweeting and speaking extensively about Russia's genocidal invasion of Ukraine, the valor of Ukrainian forces, and the weapons that the West needs to send in order for Ukraine to win, in order to achieve Ukrainian victory, full and total Ukrainian victory. He is now a senior advisor at Human Rights First. I've long been a big fan of his, and I'm very grateful to have him on the show. As usual, please like and subscribe. It gets this video seen and keeps the channel growing. General Hodges, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Paul, thank you very much for the privilege and the opportunity, and I love how you emphasize we want Ukraine to win. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. Otherwise, why are we doing this, you know? <laughs> so I want to move right to the first question here, and that is, General Hodges, could you give us a little bit of your own background? How did you come to serve as commanding general of U.S. Army Europe? So I was commissioned in May of 1980 from the Military Academy at West Point, and uh, my first assignment was in Germany back at the, in the Cold War in 1981 to 84, and then I did all the other sort of typical infantry assignments, uh, mostly with the 101st. Uh, but I also served three times in Army Congressional Liaison, which was an amazing uh, experience learning how the government works, how the Pentagon works. and uh, You were a Congressional Liaison! Yeah, how, how a bill becomes a law. I had to relearn all the civics I had blown off from high school. Wow! Uh, and then I uh, uh, served two tours in Iraq uh, and one tour in Afghanistan, and I was in Korea uh, as well. Then my, finalist, my final two assignments... I was the commander of NATO's Allied Land Command in Izmir, Turkey from 2012 to 2014. And then final assignment was as commanding general U.S. Army Europe in Wiesbaden. Wow. That's, I mean, that's quite a distinguished resume, but I also, I didn't, I didn't know you were on the Hill. That's so funny. I mean, I, I you know, I think, I think our listeners know that in my day job, I work on the Hill and I work very closely with the liaison offices. So I like to think that a, Past version of me worked with a past version of you, you know? <laughs> um, so you were running U.S. Army Europe at a really sort of decisive moment, right? I mean, this was the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine. If you go to Ukraine today and talk with any Ukrainian, they'll tell you the invasion began in 2014. This is a, you know, we've called this a full-scale invasion, but really it's a massive escalation by Russia of an invasion that began much earlier. So, you know, what did you learn from this? And how did the Europeans respond, and what were you thinking at the time? Well, uh, this is a very important distinction that the war did start in 2014. In fact, some people would say it actually that this is part of a much larger Black Sea 30 years war, which began, uh, you know, with Georgia, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, uh, and then 2014, Crimea and Donbass, and, and now here we are. This is just the latest phase, and probably. You know, 50 years from now, historians will be looking back and they'll they'll look at it in that sort of a continuum. Yeah, uh, that this is not some new thing because, um, you know, part of the reason that the Russians made a terrible strategic miscalculation was because we had failed to react properly uh, and with any significance after Georgia. We failed to react. We failed to react after they jumped over President Obama's red line in Syria. And so they felt pretty confident, uh, partly because we were still in a mess after Afghanistan. The U.K. was a mess domestically. Germany was still building Nord Stream 2. 
they probably felt pretty confident that they would be able to uh, roll on into uh, to Kiev and in, in back uh, about a year ago. So I I became the commander in 2014, November 2014, and um, of course the whole security environment in Europe had changed by this time, and and we were trying to figure out what to do, but. The Army, U.S. Army Europe, frankly, was a bill payer. Um, the Army was I see. Take, taking things out. The last tank had gone home a few years before that. So it was a, it was a different time. And, and I realized, um, like in the first couple of days, that we were going to be economy of force, uh, that there was no new stuff that was going to be brought back to Europe permanently. Oh, boy, what a shame. I mean, this whole drawdown that happened in hindsight just seems like such a enormous mistake and an inability to see the writing on the wall, as you say. I mean, it seems like, I mean, even even just a few years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, we have the Chechen Wars, right? I mean, like, so so almost right away, Russia is re-entering an imperial kind of phase. But for some reason, we just seemed unable to see this. So I, I guess I I want to ask you, like, if, if, if you had been, you know, I don't know, the president, the, the, the main decision maker in all of this, you know, in, in 2008, let's say, or in 2014. I mean, what what should have we done? I mean, I mean, if we could do it all over again, you know, how should have we approached this? Well, look, there's enough blame to go around. So you couldn't limit it to just one administration or one yeah. Congress for not uh, or one European country for not being more prepared. We, we in the U.S., though, we seem to have a real problem strategically with uh, using hard power and, and uh, having, a, having thought through what is the actual strategic end. We, we're not good, I think, at defining strategic end state. And so you end up with things like, you know, avoiding, avoiding World War III or avoiding something oh. versus like we, we are going to do the following. Now, um, uh, I think that the um, biggest problem we've had with regards to Russia and Ukraine is that we've never had a strategy for the Black Sea region. You know, the something where you look at the, the entire, from the Balkans to the Caucasus, uh, from Ukraine and Russia down to Turkey, look at that as a region, because for sure that's how Russia looks at it. And Instead, we've talked about Ukraine as if it was an island, and the, the height of the strategic discussion was whether or not to give javelin. I mean, my goodness. Uh, so that oh, was, man. That's, that's where we were because we weren't thinking strategically about the region. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I think that lack of strategic thinking, though, was also perhaps at least in part a product of kind of digesting and believing some of the Russian narratives that I think we both sort of, you know, that, that were part of their influence operations and also that we wanted to believe. I mean, it just seems, it, it seems hard to imagine how we missed this so completely. I mean, I mean, we, we seem to almost be willfully ignorant of Russia's imperial appetite. I mean, would you, would you agree with that? I mean, did you, did you see any alarm bells going off while you were, you know, well, look, with the I military? Was, uh... I'm old enough to, uh, you know, have been an officer during the Cold War, and then thinking after the wall came down, like, all right, we won. This, this is over. And I, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like peace dividend, and 
okay, let's get on to the next mission. And that was obviously, I was a captain or a major at the time. That was pretty naive on my part, but I think all of us, the, I mean, we were ignoring thousands of years of history to believe that everything was going to be great. And, you know, now they'll be free and they'll be capitalistic and they'll be democratic and it'll just be wonderful. And of course it wasn't. But I can remember seeing Russian soldiers with us in uh, Bosnia during the, as part of the I-4 mission. Um, I was working uh, at, at SHAPE at the time. And so we would go in and out of there and you'd see Russian troops that were part of the whole I-4 team, which is incredible. But I thought, wow, this might actually work. I was completely uh, naive when it comes to that. So when I started hearing about, um, uh, or after 2014, you know, when I started uh, expressing my anxiety and concerns about, hey, we don't have any tanks here, you know, we don't have enough air defense. And uh, in all the former Warsaw Pact countries and former Soviet republics like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, they were ringing bells and everybody else in Europe or even in Washington would be like, oh, come on, guys, knock it off. They're not going to do it. And so um, you, I think the way you described it's right. We, we want to believe that they really just want to get along, and that ignores centuries of history. Yeah, and I mean, what you say about our sort of Central and Eastern European allies, I, I think if we've learned any really major lesson in the midst of this full-scale invasion and, and, and looking back at the last few decades, it's listen to your Central and Eastern European allies. You know, I mean, pretty much everything they said would happen, happened almost almost to the word. You well, know, the uh, it is you, you don't want to believe that something like what's happening now could, in fact, happen in the heart of Europe in in the 21st century. It's like you just can't believe it. I mean, there are still people alive today that fought in the Second World War. I mean, that's that's very recent history, and you're just like, okay, there's no way we're this is going to happen again. So we were naive. But I have to tell you, um, our civilian leadership has got to be able to explain to the voters and the taxpayers why you have to invest in deterrence. I mean, the best way to make sure you never have to fight a war is by demonstrating that you are well-prepared and have yeah. the will to do that. That's how you stop it. When there's, whenever a potential adversary says, hmm, I don't think they have it. I don't think they're ready. I don't think they're willing to do something. Then the risk goes way up. And, and I mean, this is, we know this from thousands of years of history, but it's, it's expensive. And, you know, you and I both worked on the Hill. Uh, no member of Congress wants to spend a lot of money on stuff that you hope you'll never use because there are other priorities as well. And so um, to be able to articulate to voters the concept of deterrence and why it, in the long run it's worth it for us to be ready <clears throat> and to have allies, that is an important part of, of preventing these things from ever happening. Well, with, without a doubt, and, and I think uh, as you kind of point out, there's a very strong argument to be made that, I mean, this whole thing, this full-scale invasion happened because of a failure of deterrence, because we effectively signaled to Russia that we would not punish them. And in fact, the only thing, I think there's a, also a very good argument to be made, that the only thing that ultimately forced our hand was incredible Ukrainian valor. I mean, I, you know, I, I look at even the way we initially responded, where, I mean, our initial government response was trying to evacuate Zelensky, you know, until the... President Zelensky told us, you know, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, right? Yeah, and yeah, and they're yeah. like, oh my gosh, these guys are, 
these guys are serious about this, you know? <laughs> you know, uh, I remember like it was day two or three or whatever, and he was out with his uh, phone. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I thought, wow, this is, uh, this is what positive, dynamic, galvanizing leadership can do. And I think people in the U.S., uh, around the world were like, wow, I mean, this is, it, it, it affected all of us as well as his own people. And you'll remember, and your listeners will remember, that actually in the weeks leading up to 24 February, President Zelensky's popularity was going down. There was a lot of uh, domestic political infighting in Ukraine. Um, I was there with a small delegation on about the 10th of February, and we were there to kind of convey to the Ukrainians, hey, this is this is very serious what's happening, and you guys have got to get your get together, you know, as a unified Ukrainian people to convey to the Russians. But it was it was not an ideal situation. But he really he rose to the occasion. But her, sure did. my second thought though, when I saw him with his phone, I thought after I thought, how cool is that? Then I thought, how the hell is his phone working? I mean, how why why is the cell service still up? And that was the first indicator to me that the Russians either didn't have a capability or they needed that cell service themselves. And yeah. uh, obviously a critical uh, error on their part. Well, boy, weren't we all massively surprised by the many different failures mm. of Russia in this invasion? I mean, yeah. I, I just, I, I mean, we, we had you know, General Milley coming to the Hill telling members of Congress that Ukraine would fall in three days. I mean, we, we genuinely believed this, I think all of us, but it turned out that actually not, not only would Ukraine fight and, and have this level of valor, but that Russia was not what we thought it was. I mean, I mean, how did we miss that? Yeah, I was, I personally was so wrong on my estimation of of Russia's capability, and, and I thought a lot about that over the last 11 months. Uh, number one, I failed to appreciate the depth of corruption and the impact of that corruption on their readiness. I yeah. mean, when you, you look at a picture of the of the home of Minister of Defense Shoigu, it's like, whoa, not bad for a government employee. <laughs> right. and, um, and so, of course, all of these guys, I. I always assumed there was a level of corruption, but I didn't realize how deep it was. And so that's how you end up with uh, a lot less people than you have on the books, number one. Uh, the quality control of new equipment, um, great place for corruption. What they had in storage was not properly maintained. Uh, everybody's heard about the shoddy tires they bought from China. Uh, that they're, I mean, there's so many examples of the impact of corruption uh, in in the ranks. And then, of course, when you have that kind of corruption, nobody should be surprised that you've got soldiers that are stealing washing machines and toilets and uh, committing all sorts of, uh, of war crimes. So that was the that was the first thing. The second error I made, uh, and I'm embarrassed to admit all this because, I mean, I was the commander in Izmir for two years and then Wiesbaden for three years, and I'm sitting there looking at it, but I got focused on their modernization effort and failed to realize that the vast majority of their armed forces had zero operational experience. I mean, they yeah. had never been outside of Russia. Uh, and everything that was happening in Georgia and Ukraine, I'm sorry, in uh, Donbass and Crimea, 
uh, and in Syria, and all, it was a very, very small part of their military, including uh, the Wagner PMC. Uh, the third thing, of course, is um, they, I should have known that if they don't have operational experience, then you have to make up the difference with really, really hard demanding training, which they don't do. I mean, there is no culture of jointness. There is no, you know, there is no national training center where you go and get smashed by the op four until you get better and better, right? That, that just doesn't happen. So all of those things are part of the reason I think that I grossly overestimated their capability. Now, I will say this, and I had great respect for General Milley. We, we were colonels together a long time ago. Um, but there was no, when I heard the three days, I thought, well, that, that's impossible. You couldn't, you could not drive from the border of Belarus and encircle Kiev in three days, even if there were no Ukrainian soldiers. It was still fresh yeah. in my mind how big and complex the terrain is around Kiev. You've got a, it, the Dnipro at one of its widest points runs right through the middle. And um, it's not like Manhattan where everything is north, south, east, west. You know, I mean, it's a very complex urban terrain with hundreds of huge buildings. And, uh, you know, a big, like a university would take two or three battalions of soldiers to clear it if it's being defended. So... Uh, I, I thought the, the estimates on the time were not legitimate. And frankly, I was confident that Ukrainian soldiers would do well because we had been working with them for about uh, three or four or five years already. And um, I was sure they would do well. I wasn't as confident in the senior staff who did much better than I expected. And I was surprised by the resilience of the Ukrainian people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we heavily overestimated Russia and wildly underestimated Ukraine. I mean, it yeah. it really is. I mean, the, the kind of postmortem, I think, on both the defense analysis and the political analysis and even the economic analysis really needs to be done over the next few years and understanding how I think the entire American and European political apparatus and I mean, foreign policy apparatus got this so fundamentally wrong. I mean, it, yeah. it's really just a very uh, strange set of circumstances. So coming to today, all right, so we, we, we now are in about almost a year of the three-day, you know, special military operation, very, very special military operation. And, you know, Ukraine has very nearly, not quite, but very nearly returned to pre-February 24th borders, that's to say not 1991 borders, which is the ultimate goal, of course, right. yeah. but, but, but pre-February 24th borders. When will Ukraine win? Will this be the year of Ukrainian victory? It can be. Uh, I'm, I'm actually optimistic, even though you've got terrible fighting going on up around Bakhmut, and uh, I mean, the losses are staggering, especially for the Russians, but Ukrainian forces obviously um, are suffering casualties. And this endless uh, uh, strategic bombardment of apartment buildings by multi-million dollar precision weapons uh, is, is gut-wrenching. And um, yeah. uh, it, it's frustrating because you're like, we have got to do something to stop that. But if you can be as difficult as it is, if you can be dispassionate for a moment and kind of step back from it and think about, all right, what's going on here? Actually, we know that war is a test of will and it's a test of logistics. Clearly, Ukrainian soldiers have superior will. Ukrainian people have superior will. 
Uh, their logistical situation keeps getting better and better. Not perfect, long way to go. But I mean, you've got 50 nations that are meeting again this week, the Ramstein mm-hmm. Contact Group, to talk about what's in the next tranche of things that will be provided. Nobody's happy with the pace of delivery or uh, that we haven't still delivered certain things, which I would like to talk about you know, maybe in a moment. But it's it's moving in that direction. Russia has no Ramstein contact group. I mean, they get drones yeah. from, from uh, Iran. Think about that. They have to depend on Iran to make drones. I mean, right. this, that tells you something about the logistical situation inside Russia. And um, yes, they can continue to mobilize lots of people. Um, that does not equal a, a an effective combat force that can really threaten. So my sense is that this is what's happening. Crimea is the decisive terrain, okay? that That's what matters, Crimea. And so I think the general staff is going to do everything, the Ukrainian general staff is going to do everything they can to uh, hold off Russia. There's not going to be a big breakthrough somewhere. The Russians don't have anything with which they can exploit a breakthrough. I, I think we're going to hear a talk about a, an attack coming out of Belgorod or Belarus or something like that. But for the next probably three months, you, Ukrainian general staff is going to do their best to hold all that while focusing on the main effort, setting the conditions for an attack that's going to head towards Mariupol and isolate Crimea from the rest of Russia. There are only two roads that lead into Crimea. The Kerch Bridge, obviously, which has already been severely damaged and it's weeks yes. away from being repaired, and I am fairly certain it's going to get, it will be revisited. Uh, and then you've got the so-called land bridge that, that runs along Azov coast from Mariupol through Melitopol down into Crimea. So once, once the Ukrainians are able to isolate Crimea uh, through force, and also if we would finally give them the long-range precision weapons they need, Crimea starts looking like a trap. And, and that's why I think that by the end of this summer, by the end of August, if we give the Ukrainians everything we said we were going to give, and if we can enable them with some long-range precision weapons like ATACMs, uh, small diameter bombs, Gray Eagle, then I think by the end of August, uh, Ukrainians will have made Crimea untenable for Russian forces, and they will have to leave. I sure hope so. That sounds like a very plausible and 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 certainly very favorable scenario. Um, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more on Attackums. I mean, I mean, it just seems like the argument was dead in the water for for not sending was dead in the water on like day one. So I, I don't I don't understand really personally how it's persevered for so long. I, I I'm really actually let's get to that. Let's get to the weapons we've sent and that we're sending because it seems like. Okay, it seems like we've needed to put on enormous pressure to get basically the most basic stuff to Ukraine. I mean, as you say, it started out with this horrendous hesitancy to send even javelins, but then javelins went, and then a hesitancy to send Heimers, but then Heimers went, a hesitancy to send Patriots, and then Patriots went, hesitancy to send Bradleys, Bradleys go, you know, I mean, and it's still this endless hesitancy to send Attackums, but it seems like, I mean, eventually Attackums will go, and all of this is my understanding, based on a fear of Russian escalation. Please, I just want to, I just want to, your, your, your reaction, please. 
Well, I agree with you completely. I, the administration, uh, but other countries as well, we have consistently overestimated the risk of Russia escalating. They, there's nothing they can do, and I think other than to use a nuclear weapon, and I think that our president has made it clear that there would be catastrophic consequences, and I think in this case the general staff believes him. I think the Russians believe him like, holy hell, the Americans actually would do something that would destroy whatever they have in, uh, in and around Crimea, for example, or in Russian-controlled parts of, of Ukraine. I think they, they believe that. And uh, I think the Chinese and India and others have conveyed to the Kremlin, big mistake, do not do this. Absolutely do not do this. And I think also these uh, people around Putin, they're thinking, okay, they're hoping for life after him and that when this is all over that they can return to their big flats in Mayfair you know, or, or whatever it is. And so I, that's why I think it's so unlikely that they would do this. And so we continue to incrementalize and kind of spoon out uh, things rather than saying, we're going to win. We want Ukraine to win. Why can't the president, why can't the secretary, why can't other people say we want them to win and then let's do what's necessary? Now, look, I think that um, uh, because we have limited ourselves to give in, in terms of long range, the GMLRS, which is fired by HIMARS, the Gimlers, has that range of about 90 kilometers. In effect, we have created sanctuary for Russia for beyond mm -hmm. 90 kilometers. So all of Crimea is a sanctuary. Um, uh, 60, 70, 80, 90 kilometers inside Russia or Belarus, sanctuary. And they are murdering innocent Ukrainian people yep. every week because we have not helped Ukraine with the capability to defend itself. It, for the love of God, at least let them hit targets in Crimea. If It is exactly 300 kilometers straight line distance from Odessa to Sevastopol. If they had, uh, if they had a Takums right now, the Russians would have had to have already departed um, Sevastopol and the Black Sea Fleet, which has uh, been uh, is hiding from the Ukrainians right now would have to completely relocate. And it would be very diff difficult for them to keep launching these uh, caliber missiles they're firing. Right. And I mean, it's uh, this, this, this very strange worry about the Russian use of nuclear weapons, right? I mean, Russia, Russia isn't going to use a nuclear weapon because we hand over Bradleys or Attackums. I mean, they're not going to use a nuclear weapon because we have a very strong nuclear deterrent. Right. I mean, that's, that's, as you say about deterrence, I mean, that's what they're worried about. That's, that's how deterrence work. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a fundamental misunderstanding of what prevents the use of nuclear weapons. I mean, it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's been very, very strange and unfortunate to watch. I think you're, you've, you put it exactly, very succinctly that we've, we've deeply overestimated the risk. We're being excessively cautious to the point that we're making ourselves less safe and reducing our deterrence capacity. Yeah, those Russian nuclear weapons and look, I take it serious. They have thousands of them. Yeah. And they clearly don't care how many innocent people are killed. But um, I think that, as I said, the general staff believes our president. And there's no battlefield advantage if they use a tactical nuclear device. Right. It won't do anything for them because they have nobody that's trained and ready to exploit whatever opportunity might be created. And so at the end of the day, the, their nuclear weapons are most effective if they don't use them. Once they use them, then it's it's all over for them. When I was in uh, Ukraine in September, I was talking to 
you know, various Ukrainians of all levels from sort of President Zelensky down to, you know, your average Kievan, right? And, and everyone sort of said the same thing. And that's like, okay, if Russia uses nuclear weapons, we're going to keep fighting and win the war. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, 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 it's to them, it's, like, it's, it's very strange that the people that are most fearful, most scared, most, you know, uh, uh, kind of shaken, got the jitters of this whole thing, are not the people that will be targeted by it and are not the people that have been killed by all this stuff. It's the people that are on the other side of the world. It's very, it's very strange. It's all theoretical and academic, and it's, it's not, it, takes, it takes not at all into account the actual strategic and tactical variables here. It's very frustrating. General, I want to I ask you one final question before we end here, and that's um, you, you've written a piece that basically um, says we need to prepare for the possibility of Russian disintegration. Um, the dissolution of the of the Russian Federation, um, a, as you're well aware, this is something you know I have explored both in my personal and professional life, and have had people on to talk about in this this show, and um, you know I, I that I think has finally entered the DC discussion a little bit, but there's still this enormous hesitancy, kind of around even talking about this, mm-hmm. right? Which, is, which, which I think is, has, has deeply limited our thinking. So please tell us why we should prepare and, and, and should, we, should we welcome this? Is, this? is this something that could be a positive for the world and the United States? Uh, the only positive from it is that it might finally get us to a place where there's a Russia that decides it's gonna li- it can and should live within its own, within, within its own boundaries. Um, but my interest and my concern about us thinking about the possibility of the breakup of the Russian Federation is that there are, there will be thousands of nuclear weapons that we need to be, for which we have to account. Um, the energy infrastructure that a lot of people depend on, um, I think the potential for an awful lot of violence is there as various parts of the Federation see opportunity to break away. Uh, I think the Chechens are thinking, hmm, you know, we won the first one, we lost the second one, you know, yeah. and uh, Mr. Kadyrov, um, who was no Thomas Jefferson, you know, he's been kind of shepherding his forces, uh, his Chechen forces, I think, either to be the savior or the um, successor to Putin or uh, to, for Chechnya to break away. So there, there would be a huge impact on all of us uh, that would not be good <clears throat> if this happens, especially if we're not prepared for it. Now, uh, the, the recent change of command there uh, with uh, Mr. Uh, General Surovikin being redesignated as deputy or something or another and Gerasimov becoming the, uh, taking on the responsibilities as operational commander, I'm not a criminologist, so I can't tell exactly what this all means, uh, but I think it, it's a combination of factors. Number one, it's, it's a signal that the Kremlin knows that um, after 11 months, their special military operation is not achieving its objectives. It's failing. So, you know, if a football team is doing terrible, the first thing you do is fire the coach. So that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what they're trying to do here is find the right, and hopefully they never will, figure out how to get a coherent joint command structure in place. Secondly, uh, this has revealed uh, much more clearly the power struggles going on there. I mean, uh, Prigozhin of the Wagner PMC, uh, 
private military company, um, is constantly criticizing very openly Shoigu and Gerasimov. So there's there's no love there. You can be sure that Prigozhin, who claims to have the best forces fighting for the Russian Federation, you can be sure he's not taking orders from the general staff. Um, and so it looks to me like Gerasimov actually is being put forward. This is not a promotion for him. He's gonna he's gonna be the fall guy. Uh, uh, I thought he would have been sacked months ago, him and Shoigu, but they've kept their jobs because they've been so intensely loyal. Um, and uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. But I think there is a massive power struggle going on back there um, that could erupt. I mean, here we are. It's it's middle of January. So the war has been going on. The special military operation has been going on 11 months. They have barely improved what land that they have. They've lost enormous amounts of equipment, vehicles, and people, and their economy is suffering from all this. And I think over the next seven months, by the end of August, you're going to see uh, the the rot and the uh, lack of morale, and lack of will, and the corruption, um, and their inability to replenish stuff, not bodies, but equipment, particularly precision weapons, and I think the potential for this a collapse of Russian forces is there because Ukraine is, is on the ascendancy as long as we keep supporting them. That, that's why I'm optimistic. Yeah, and we need to prepare for that. And we need to prepare for what that could mean. And, and I mean, it, it well could mean a, a fundamental transformation of Russia as we know it. And I mean, in a, yeah, in a very... You're right. And, and we have got to stop breathing oxygen into the Kremlin by talking about... Yes. Um, we need to have a peace settlement, you know, with that, as if stopping the fighting is the most important thing. That's not. Winning the war is the most important thing, and that means that Ukraine has to retain Crimea. Ukraine will never be safe or secure or stable, nor will it ever be able to rebuild its economy as long as Russia controls Crimea, because they'll be able to disrupt anything going in and out of Odessa, Kherson. And for sure, they'll never open up the Azov Sea again. So how is Ukraine going to rebuild its economy? And then, of course, they'll always have Crimea as a jumping off point after two or three years when they wait for us to lose interest again. And then they, here we go again. Yeah, 1991 borders. Yeah. 1991 borders, or that's it. That, that, nothing I less. I agree. So, General Hodges, thank you so much for coming on. Wonderful to chat with you. Very interesting talk. Look forward to talking again in the future. Thank you very much, Paul.